Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Michigan Law in Chicago, joined by my co-host, Rob Hunt, back from his uh, travels to Colorado and all the skiing he got to do out there. And our uh, producer, Dan Humiston, is always uh, with us today. Great show for you guys today. A lot of really interesting things to discuss. Yes, playing in the sand gets discussed. Uh, there's some big news in the cannabis industry uh, that we'll get to uh, that uh, suggests that we're seeing interesting directions for cannabis companies want to go right now. And we get to throw a little uh, fatherly pride on our producer uh, towards the end. But we're looking forward to all of it. Uh, Rob, how you doing? And welcome back. Great to be back. I got to say, I'm, I'm pretty excited because this officially marks the second year I've been part of uh, this team. So second calendar year. It feels like it's been almost a full year since I, I joined as a co-host. So really, really fun and pleased to be back. And I also want to say that uh, no disrespect to Colorado. I was actually skiing in Utah, and uh, between the two, you know, I will take a pot shot at Colorado and just let everyone know just how much better the skiing is in Utah than it is in, in you know, my former home state of Colorado. But having lived in both states for years, there's really no comparison between the two. Utah just gets so much more snow, and the terrain is just so much more fun. Okay. Good to know and something to keep in mind. Um, and I'm sure the folks in Colorado have something to say about that. We're always happy to to listen to them on that. Yeah, don't, don't at me. Right, exactly. So um, we're, we're nothing on this show if not full of ironies. We have a great show to uh, talk about today. And it's a show that we've mentioned from time to time because it is, in fact, the very first show uh, that our farmer co-host, uh, Jim Marty, now uh, in retirement, uh, ever saw uh, from Springfield, Massachusetts, back in January 15th, 1979. And without any further ado, Dan Humiston, please uh, let's spin a little music and listen to what we got coming out of that show right away. That's a great song as always, and uh, that's a great version of it, Rob. I know uh, this is a show that holds uh, some meaning for you. What are your thoughts? Well, you know, I led with that one because I think it's a great double entendre. Because if you listen to the opening line of that song, it's uh, you know, I don't trust nothing, but I know it come out right. And I was really hoping that'd be the case with playing in the sand, not playing in the band. But I think that we we're all hoping, you know, that uh, that. Omicron would not end up doing the same thing to, uh, to the dead that it did to, uh, to Fish for New Year's and tons of other bands. And unfortunately, it looks like uh, we all trusted to nothing and it came out wrong on this case. And, uh, you know, first, first it looked like we were just losing, you know, potentially, um, you know, John Mayer, but we were going to get um, Tom Hamilton in, in, in replace. And I, I was delighted when I heard that. And I'll take Tom Hamilton anytime playing anything Grateful Dead related. And so I was actually like, okay, this is going to be fantastic. But then when you actually had the next band member, you know, reveal COVID uh, positive as well, really too bad. And I know tons of people, we both know tons of people, Larry, that are really looking forward to playing in the sand this year. And this time it just didn't appear to, uh, to, to happen. No, and that includes Jim Marty, who uh, was going to be there. And in fact, uh, we had uh, high hopes that we'd be hearing from him today from Mexico uh, with an update on the first weekend of playing in the sand. Uh, I had a chance to talk to Jim very briefly and uh, based on where the numbers were going and what was happening, he and his wife opted to take advantage of the refund offer and did not travel down. But uh, one of his friends did, uh, in fact, was planning on going both weekends and traveled down only to find, of course, that the shows were canceled. Now, canceling shows for COVID is nothing new. It, it's happened quite a lot over the last two years. And for better or for worse, rock fans, you know, no matter what your band of, of choice is, uh, are getting used to it. And, you know, it, it almost got to the point where, uh, you know, as we were leading up to New Year's, uh, every day, you know, I had my phone, whatever it was set to, jamband.com. There was always, it was buzzing with yet another show that was being canceled, show after show around the country. Uh, fish, of course, uh, the biggest blow of all, I suppose, for those who are big fish fans and big jam band fans and, and really like what fish does on New Year's Eve. But, you know, I, I think that there's some tough stuff that has to be said about the Grateful Dead or Dead and Co under these circumstances. And it's something that, that really kind of bothered me. This was not handled well. This was, this was not only not handled well, 
But I think it really kind of highlighted the side of Dead & Co. that many of us have just kind of accepted with a grain of salt because we're excited to go out there and see these guys. But, you know, these guys in, in their current version have really seemed to become a more, let's just say, you know, profit-based operation. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, every group that goes out there and, and plays, they're, you know, they're doing it for a living and to keep themselves and their families and their and their groups and, and their um, uh, support group and staff and all of that. That's a lot of people. It's a lot of money, and I don't take any of that lightly. But, you know, with the dead, there was always this sense that, you know, that, that the fans and the family came first, and, you know, the profit, if there was a profit, came later. And, you know, by operating in that way, you know, the dead did very well for themselves. And, you know, I'm, again, I'm not here to say what, what anybody has a right to or not to go do, but with, all, with shows being canceled everywhere, the idea that they were going to really bring this thing off in Mexico with, with all the international travel that was involved and people coming from everywhere, and, uh, you know, the best advice they could give you was stay on the hotel grounds and don't go into any of the local uh, locations, it, it just was a, an untenable situation for too many people who couldn't afford to get over there, then test positive and have to quarantine in Mexico waiting to get back into the United States. And, and it seems to me that the call should have made a, been made a lot sooner and, you know, long before people uh, were even close to getting on airplanes and flying down there, far enough in advance that people could uh, get refunds and could go and, you know, make their own plans in terms of what they wanted to do instead. You know, and in that respect, I have to really applaud Fish, both in terms of their timing and their immediate follow-up saying, not a problem, we're going to give you guys live music on New Year's Eve. And we're going to find a way to do it. And it's not going to be ideal, but it's going to be better than nothing. And this is our way of saying thank you to the fans. And, you know, the dead's way of saying thank you to the fans was some crazy quote by Mickey about how, well, we tried to ride the virus and, you know, we got burned doing it or something. And it was like, really? You know, I just, I, I it, it kind of struck me the wrong way um, that, you know, the, the idea of, well, if we cancel, we're all out a lot of money. It's going to cost a lot. And I just, I, that I, I wasn't very happy about that. And, you know, maybe I'm being a little too picky about it, but I expect more from the dead. Yeah, I'm not sure that's always the, um, the, the band that makes that decision. I think oftentimes it's the promoter. So it all depends on, you know, who else they're answering to. Because, you know, if you say who's going to pull the plug, I think most of the time the band's like, yeah, we'll play as long as the promoter tells us that the thing's still on. In this case, you know, I'd be looking more to point my finger at CID Entertainment and whether or not Burko made the right decision, you know, going forward on this thing. So, you know, again, there, there might have been, we don't know what those contracts look like. We don't know whether or not um, coronavirus was considered to be a force majeure event or whether or not, you know, there was other things. I don't know what the deposit situation was with the hotel or the resort. You know, there could be a lot of other things in play there where someone could be saying, you know, thinking about it from the standpoint of, hey, we stand to lose a ton of money that we can't get back if this thing cancels. So unless we absolutely have to, you know, let's keep this thing on. So the band, I think, has some influence in those situations. But yeah, I think the promoter has a bigger influence. You know, and you may very well be right. You know, and look, far be it for me to sit here uh, in, you know, nice Chicago, Illinois, and try and judge what somebody else was doing. But, you know, I mean, knowing people who were going down there and just, you know, thinking to myself, man, if I had tickets for this thing at this point, I would be really messed up trying to figure out what to do and where to go. And, you know, yeah, sometimes it's kind of nice to see the band members stand up and say, you know what, under the circumstances, this just isn't right. Again, I get there's a lot of money involved. I understand all of that. It's, you know, and, but I always like to look at the Grateful Dead as, and the, the whole Dead family as being this entity that certainly, certainly was part of the rock scene and, and, you know, certainly benefited from it, and well, they should, but also always kind of seemed to march to their own tune and, you know, put different values ahead of the values of, uh, of the big boys in the, uh, in the rock and roll suites. Um, the other issue that I thought was really interesting with all of it was that John Mayer being diagnosed positive was not in and of itself enough to cancel the event. Now, I, I, I don't disagree with you about Tom Hamilton, and for God's sakes, you know, there's all sorts of guys who, you know, they could bring in, you know, Warren Haynes. We could go on and on with the names of guys who could step in at the last minute and play for John Mayer in that situation and, you know, do a really good job. But it just made me think, you know, in 1986, when Jerry drops with a diabetic coma, they weren't talking about finding a replacement for Jerry to keep playing. Right, right. right. Carlos wasn't you know jumping in to sit in with them. Right, yeah, but but the band stopped, you know, and some of us who had second row center seats for the Fox Theater in St. Louis, you know, were disappointed, but understood the man's dying. That this is what it has to be. But you know, I, I don't think that at the time there was ever a thought that well we could just bring in somebody else. 
to fill in for him and and it'll all be good again you know dead and co is great it's nice to have them out there they provide a fun environment for deadheads to come out and be part of the old scene and you know every now and then they hit a tune that's really a lot of fun generally speaking i don't typically enjoy their versions of the dead songs but i like the concerts enough that i'm happy to go see them and everything like that but they've spent a lot of time talking about you know how john mayer hasn't just you know joined the band but he has become the band and that you know the 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 intricate uh, on-stage conversation that he's developed with jeff Clementi and with uh you know with all the other guys and with bobby and how he's really kind of taken charge and he's you know really stepped out and he's sick no problem we got a replacement for him boom and I thought, wait a second, you know, and then, I, I, you know, again, you, you can tell me if you think I'm too sensitive, but on the heels of that, all of a sudden, Bobby's saying, we know it's bad, but don't worry, we're going to promise you some rare, uh, some rare gems from the vault or whatever his line was suggesting, you know, that they were going to pull out some really old tunes. And I thought, I, I don't know, you know, it, it just a lot of it rubbing me the wrong way and, and just not the way I would like to see, you know the dead handling a situation like that. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of deadheads out there who are very frustrated. I'm sure there's a lot of deadheads out there who say, hey, we got it, and if they're doing it again next year, we're going right back, and God bless them, you know? Uh, I, like I say, it, it's, a fun, it's a fun place and a fun scene, and I always see fun people when I'm there, and as long as they're going to go around and do shows, I'll certainly see them in my backyard. Yeah, look, I don't think you're being too sensitive on that one, Larry. I mean, it's very, uh, very appropriate to bring that up when you think that you know, we have been sold that, you know, John Mayer is an irreplaceable guy. And suddenly when first, you know, opportunity, uh, you know, like, look, I mean, the, the, there certainly could be a case made by the band saying, hey, well, we've all played with Tom Hamilton also. And Tom plays with Billy and Tom plays with, you know, um, you know the Garcia band uh, to play. And he's, you know, certainly filled the role to play with uh, Joe Russo's Almost Dead. There isn't a single you know, thing in there. But, I mean, look, look, you could be a great doubles um, uh, tennis player playing really well with one partner, and all of a sudden you're paired up with someone else, and your game might be terrible because you don't know how to move the, around the court the same way. And I look at musicians in, in sort of the same respect, that Tom Hamilton might be absolutely amazing with Joe Russo, but you throw him in there with um, the rest of the Grateful Dead members, and he still might be good, but it's certainly not going to be what it is when you've played you know, 400 or 500 gigs with those guys the way that, um, that Mayer has at this point. So you know, it's actually a really, really strong point that you're not getting kind of what you were what you were sold. And you know, someone called me up and said, "Okay, hey, Jimmy Herring can't play with Panic this weekend, and instead you're going to get um, you know name the person." I, I would be a little uh, distressed, even though you know Jimmy was the replacement for you know years of having uh, Mikey Hauser there. So it's uh, you know when you replace someone, you make a decision to replace someone with another with another band member, and then that becomes the new band member. You can, you don't just throw in you know backups all the time. You know it's not like it's not like in a sports team where you're running plays with the backup guys all the time and you're still having that sort of same um, uh, rapport. Like this is like you're you're throwing in someone cold. Well, that's true, uh, it, it, and it's more than true. You know, I'm just thinking. You know, I've, I've told the story at least once, and my kids would probably say a thousand times of being at Folsom Field a couple of years ago and the kids behind me getting all excited because they were going into Althea and they loved the way John Mayer plays Althea. You know, to the point where they wanted to suggest that maybe he plays it better than Garcia. And I'm like, I'm thinking of those guys going to play in the sand. Man, for them, John Mayer is the thing. And they get there, and he ain't there. Well, the only thing I can think, though, and from my side, because you know I'm not a John Mayer fan, and I am definitely a Tom Hamilton fan, is I, I look at it sort of the same way that I wasn't a huge um, Drew Bledsoe fan. So when Tom Brady got thrown in, you know, kind of the end of that year, and all of a sudden came up and performed, and Bledsoe was no longer the guy part of me was very, very satisfied that they had someone else to replace, you know, and same thing, like, you know, name, name a, any sports person that's the starting string guy that you're not all that pleased to see as a starting string guy, and you're almost cheering for the backup, you know, so like, there's some, you know, part of me that hopes Tom Hamilton goes down there, and goes, wow, he's so much better than Mayer, and the next iteration is, you know, that, that Mayer is out and uh, Hamilton's in. Right, and this whole idea about promising special songs, you know, that's, that's so undead-like, you know, to say... Oh, we're gonna we're gonna really pull out a few. You better be down here. And if you're gonna pull out a few special songs, aren't they songs that supposedly you've been rehearsing with John Mayer? I, look, whatever. Uh, you know they've always you know marched to their own beat. And as a deadhead, you know you, you you march with them or you march off to the side. But maybe it explains a little bit more. You know why Phil is off doing his own thing. I don't know. I, you know when when I went and saw Phil and friends with the quintet, it was simple. It was easy. We went in, I got the Grateful Dead high that I was looking for three nights in a row, walked out of there, and uh, 
and it was all good. Um, at the end of the day, I think it's just a shame because I, we do know a lot of people who are really, really excited about getting down there, who really enjoy the scene, who really enjoy uh, everything that, uh, you know, that Dead & Co. brings to this situation. But the other thing that it shined a light on, I just didn't realize how many bands are doing it now. And they were talking about apparently Wilco has a show going on down there and Fish always does a show in Mexico. I haven't heard a whole lot about Fish's Mexico show this year. Yeah, I mean, look, this, the resort they do it at, the Riviera Maya Resort, I think it was the guys from Cloud9 that were doing it first. And uh, the same people put on Jam Cruise. And, uh, and then, you know, obviously Fish did it and then a bunch of other bands have done it. But there's definitely a trend of using, you know, sort of the Riviera Maya as a, uh, as a destination getaway. And uh, it's... First of all, it's a great venue. Second of all, it's a uh, you know great setting. Third of all, plenty of people want to go to Mexico anyway on vacation. So, you know, why not do it that way? It's kind of the same idea as Jam Cruise. Like, hey, without taking a cruise, wouldn't it be more fun to do with all of our buddies and you know a bunch of live music. So it it makes sense. You know, I can understand. I mean, Cancun's a, a relatively decent sized airport, and it's only about a half hour drive from there. So, so why not? Outside of the fact that you know you have to still be careful, a because it's Mexico, and you know the cartels are are still relatively rampant, and you know. That's that's one concern, but then when you've got a, a pandemic where, you know, as you said, the, the important thing isn't necessarily not being able to get there; it's not being able to get home. So I certainly wouldn't want to be stuck in, um, you know, a Mexican hospital for quite a while, or just being told, you know, you have to wait it out for another ten days uh, until you, you know, test negative twice. Look, ev- everything everything in my life I have to reassess right now as a result of kind of the, uh, the situation we're all faced with. And, you know, I've made the decision not to go to live music but for one or two times, and that was when, you know, numbers were, were substantiating that that was a prudent decision. So I don't know if we're there. But look, let's talk about more positive Grateful Dead things. I mean, look, we're 57 years into the, uh, into the career of these guys. It's funny to me because I always think of the late 70s as being kind of halfway through the Grateful Dead era, but it really isn't. You know, it's basically like very, very early in the era if you, if you include everything that's happened subsequent to 1995, which is now the majority of their careers or close to the majority of their careers, you know, like 27 years post-Jerry. But uh, yeah, we did use that 115.79 as our, as our intro and kind of the show that we're going to be talking about today. And one of the things I'll say about it, and we've we've touched on this before because it was Jim's first show, that this really represented the uh, the, the real transition of, you know, the um, the the Godshaw years into the uh, the Midland years. But uh, one fifteen seventy nine kind of is like representing you know the end of an era, but it's also one of the strongest shows you know I can think of. And you know, you and I have talked about it. there's certain things that the, that Garcia was doing during that period, which is during his transition jams, was doing these really really funky transitions from one song into another really just kind of walking the uh, the board up um, and just playing um, scales as he was doing it. And I don't think there's a better representation out there than there is in, in what we're going to play next is the transition from I Need a Miracle into Shakedown, which, you know, we can talk about on the other side, but you know, I'll go on the record right now and say that for the last 20 years, there's nothing I'd rather hear coming out of the Grateful Dead than this transition because it's just so unbelievably powerful dropping into the Shakedown. And it's one that, like, I can think of where I, where I was when I first heard it. It was driving through the... Uh, the tunnel going back from Nassau Coliseum into New York City after a, um, a Nassau show in 1990. And a buddy of mine that had this um, uh, guy named George Canalia had an amazingly fun uh, Volkswagen Jetta with a six sound system. And he cranked this thing up and it absolutely blew my mind. And it's blown my mind ever since then. You know, we're going on, you know, how many years since 1990. And this one, this one still remains. I, I still can't find anything that I like better in terms of a transition from song A to song B than what we're about to listen to. So, so Dan, let's fire that one up. Just to close the door on the last subject, this is why I want to see the Grateful Dead all the time. And, you know, I appreciate what those guys are doing, but nobody's playing transitions from Miracle into Shakedown like that. And nobody can play uh, transitions from Miracle into Shakedown like that. John Mayer can't do that. Nobody can do that. (laughs) Nobody can do that. That, And, you know, the beauty of it is you could be anywhere, anytime. 
in any circumstance. And if somebody clicked that on, A, you would know it's the Grateful Dead right away. And B, what I love about it is it's that distinctive, you know, blah sound he makes with the guitar. Yeah, he, it's the envelope fader. That, you know, when he, as, as they're going into shakedown. So you, you say to yourself, shakedown, I don't quite hear it all yet, but I know that that's telling me shakedown. And then as he builds up to this crescendo, they come crashing into shakedown. And that's, yeah, I mean, that's, look, if it's a choice between that or seeing, you know, fill in the name of any band in the world, you know, play a really, really hot tune and then stop Thanks, audience. We really love playing that song for you guys. You guys are great. Uh, you know, we're going to let, uh, uh, you know, Keith catch his breath over here, and then we're gonna, we've got another song. This is why we see The Grateful Dead, because it's not that. It's an entire journey. The second set, I always just kind of thought of it as a song. I didn't think of the second set so much as song stop. You know, on some nights, literally, right, they'd go straight from a Scarlet Fire jam all the way into Drums in Space, and then they could just as easily come out of drums in space and, and end the night. Maybe they'd get into a round and round stop and then do Sugar Magnolia or something. It was this beauty of getting you caught up in the moment of one song and then hitching onto that and carrying you over right into the next song. So you, you're, you feel exhausted and exhilarated at the same time. Your body's like, oh, wait, this song is over, but here we go on the next one. It's amazing. Yeah, look, in the, when I think about... Uh, the whole transition, you know, obviously we only play a short bit on this, um, you know, for the audience, but, you know, I encourage anyone to go back there because the actual, you know, sort of slowdown or meltdown coming out of the, uh, the I Need a Miracle is a really, really slow, mellow fade out before you start getting that build up back in, which is what makes it even that much more exciting is you're kind of losing interest in the miracle when all of a sudden you hear the switch to the envelope um, uh, pedal and, and you start hearing the wah-wah, you know, coming out that you get in, a, in an estimator or you get in a shakedown. And then just watching it build from there, where it just comes out of nowhere until it just explodes into the opening notes of Shakedown. Very, very few times do you get something that's that powerful coming in. And you obviously, like, you know, you, you always wait for it, you know, transitioning from Slipknot into Franklin's, where you're waiting for the opening notes of the Franklin's. And there's other times where, you know, you're, you're waiting for the opening notes of the fire, where you're waiting for the first... You know, but... In the in the shakedown, normally shakedown is, is starting off you know on its own. It's uh, it opening a set, right? But to actually get something to sort of like walk it back down and then build it back up and then just explode into an already like full tilt shakedown, that's why like on, on this specific one, I absolutely love it. No, it, it's awesome, and 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 I know you've mentioned it before, and I've listened to it before. But again, you know, every time you hear it, it just gets want to get you right up on your feet. And I'm like, not okay, Dan. No need to cut the shakedown. We can just jam that all the way through and edit it out later, because um, it is that good, and it's uh, it's wonderful to listen to. Um, and I think it really does define that era of of the Grateful Dead. I need a miracle. Shakedown Street were very, you know prominent um you know disco dead era type tunes in fact i i still have a distinct memory of uh seeing the grateful dead play i need a miracle on saturday night live one night you know they were out there jamming on that and thinking okay whatever you know i was still a little too young to hop on the bus but at least was getting curious enough to start thinking about it and uh you know, th this is that period of time. In fact, uh, uh, you know, right over New Year's, our, our New Year's show, we talked about the uh, farewell to Winterland uh, and how that show is 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 many in 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 many respects, kind of like almost a transition from one era into the other. But this, well, and, and we just to be fair, we talked about how it was. You know, they they brought in a whole bunch of other stuff. There was a first Dark Star in Forever and other stuff like that, and. Um, carried it over into the show we talked about last week from Nassau uh, in, uh, was that also 79? I don't even remember what show we were, yeah, it was 79, and it was the one where they played the second Dark Star after, they, it was on January 10th, so they had just played, they had just broken out Dark Star for the first time in four years at Farewell to uh, Winterland, and then not only that, but they also played St. Stephen that night, it was the last time they played St. Stephen for four years till they broke it out in the Garden in 83. So, you know, the late 70s, or, you know, as they spilled over into the 80s, was definitely this transition. But even here, it's almost more pronounced because this is really creeping up. But this is, this is one of the last, you know, shows for Keith. Uh, we know that uh, Brent joins the band in April of this year, in April of 79, on a show down in San Jose. So whether Jerry and the boys knew that this was coming, you know, whether they sensed it, whether 
it was something, but, you know, they, they go back and they play some of these tunes and, you know, just a great miracle and a shakedown, I think, gives, you know, Grateful Dead fans a lot of hope that no matter where we wind up, guys, we got great stuff, you know, from this era now that is going to carry us forward till we figure out, you know, what else to do. And, you know, what a great time to be seeing the Grateful Dead. And, you know, even though I started seeing them in 82 and was very happy about that, I was always felt like I was just a few years too late. You know, and if you could have caught him in 78, 79 and just caught the tail end of that whole era uh, and use that as a slingshot into the Brent era, that would have been wonderful. But, you know, I'm happy with what I got and I'm happy to go back and listen to this. Yeah, I, I love 1979. I think 79 has, everything's a little bit faster, really, really fun. Love the song selection. I've always been a huge 79 fan. I've always loved the Cape Cod Coliseum shows. Always loved Springfield. I think that the whole Northeastern run is just, fantastic it is it was it was a great time for the band and and, and, and a year i think that's often overlooked um and and and, and you know 1979 and 1980 i think often tend to get kind of pushed aside as a couple of down years when you know the band really kind of dropped uh about as low as it would ever get again in terms of uh followers and you know playing without necessarily selling out there you know the smaller venues um the, the hockey arenas they were still selling out i guess the uh the theaters and stuff, but, um, uh, you know, they, they just kept, you know, right on pushing it. And, you know, by the time I started seeing them in the early eighties, they sure sounded like they were at full strength to me and, uh, you know, and just rolled forward with a lot of authority. But, uh, you know, those are very transformative years, I suppose, you know, not to dwell too much, but, you know, to, to, to definitely take note of it. That's also right around the time that Jerry, uh, you know, began his major switch from, uh, the psychedelic Jerry to the, uh, you know, powder Jerry, whatever the powder was at the moment, uh, but usually not the best thing in the world, and ultimately took him to a road that uh, we all know how it ended. Not here to judge, not here to do anything, just note that that was the time period where this was all going down, and, you know, on a number of those nights he came out just shining, and, um, you know, if that was the, the powder of the day speaking to him, God bless. If that was just him being Jerry, even better. Uh, but it leaves us with, with such a deep, rich catalog of music from that period of time that, you know, you could, we could just as easily focus on the se late 78, all of 79, early 1980 era of the Grateful Dead, you know, and have a lifetime's worth of stuff to talk about. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely agree. Well, should we, uh, should we shift gears and talk about some, uh, some Canvas World news these days? Yeah, absolutely. Um, lead us off, because it looks like news in Canada is not quite as good as everybody would like it to be. I think anyone that's been paying attention for a while would say that Canada's been a market in distress for quite a while and certainly hasn't lived up to the expectations that I think the um, initial investors had. I think most industry professionals would tell you that there's no possible way Canada could ever live up to those expectations, as we've discussed previously. It's just not a big enough market. You know, it's a market smaller than California, yet it's the market cap of its, you know, top 10 businesses is significantly larger even now than, than the market caps of, you know, their American counterparts. You know, if you ultimately don't have a, a large TAM, a total addressable market, it's uh, very, very difficult to, to realize the kind, of, um, the kind of value that you were promising to deliver. So, you know, for a while, the Canadian companies were saying, oh, yeah, we're going to migrate into the U.S. or we're going to open up, um, open up shop in uh, the LATAM market or the European market. And none of those things really happened. But for the first time, you're watching analysts, you know, admit that they are wrong and start to slash a lot of the, um, the, the revenue targets or revenue um, estimates that are coming out of these companies, you know, which, again, doesn't surprise me at all. I'm just wondering what took people like Vivian Azar at, um, at, at Cowan so long to come to a conclusion that all of us were telling her five years ago was the truth. And just, you know, it, it always makes me wonder, and I don't know how much you interact with the analysts on Wall Street, Larry, but, you know, for a while I was speaking to a lot of these guys, you know, relatively frequently, and, and they're backing into numbers where I'm like, you guys are absolutely nuts. Like, how are you, how are you giving someone credit for a value that's, you know, six times EBITDA five years downstream. Like, not this year's EBITDA, but, you know, five years from now. And then you're saying, well, throw a multiple on that. It's like, why not just pick a number out of the sky and figure out how you're going to back into it? But there was no standard methodology or no standard metric. And I've watched, you know, like my buddy Jason Spadafora, who is, you know, better known as the Wolf of Wall Street. You know, he's been roasting those guys for years and very accurately, you know, saying this is nuts. And, you know, it doesn't mean you, doesn't mean you shouldn't be investing in these things if you want to look at, you know, making some short-term dollars on flipping on, on news. But as a long-term hold strategy, 
a lot of these Canadian companies, like there was no possible way they could sustain the value that they were putting up, whether it was, you know, Canopy or whether it was Tilray or whether it was Aurora or whether it was Kronos. All of them were just ludicrous valuations. Well, you know, let me ask you this. Um, do you attribute it to the fact that, I mean, we're, we're basically talking about a market that's a brand new market that has no historical history or, you know, background or any kind of evidence, you know, I mean, I, the little that I know about analysts is, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you're going to go out and, and, you know, give you an estimate on, on this year's orange juice crop. Yes, I, I did watch trading places. You know, these people who are preparing those reports have knowledge of the, you know, Florida orange juice crop and that they actually know what they're talking about. And I'm just wondering, you know, when we're talking about these analysts and some of the guys you're naming, you know, are, are these people who are who are analysts or who are cannabis analysts? And, you know, that that's where I'm kind of wondering because it seems to me, and, and we've talked about how this market goes all over the place. You know, you talk about trading on news and the example that I get tired of giving is when um, Sessions announced that uh, we're, they were going to, table the coal memorandum and everybody panicked and wanted to sell and get out and we said why nothing has changed you know nothing here is 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 new and it it just always concerned me that you know maybe some of the people who were calling the shots don't have the cannabis background and understanding to be able to really address these types of situations sure so you know you can you can quote trading places over there beaks but uh what i'll tell you is I'd quote vacation on this one and say, you know what I think? I think you're all fucked in the head, right? <laughs> and, and I think that I, I think that it's you know you look at these analysts and and they were not cannabis professionals. They certainly you know tried to understand the market, but the problem that they were, that they were facing off against is they didn't take the time to understand the underlying business, right? And so as you looked at some of these companies that were building out these massive growth facilities, and you know let, let's just use Canopy as an example, and I'm not trying to throw shade at you know Bruce Linton or anyone that you know predated the current uh, team that's over there, but when they went out there and said, hey, we're going to build out you know a couple million square feet of cultivation, and you know for every uh, square foot of cultivation we expect to produce X amount of grams per square foot on an annualized basis, everyone goes, oh wow, they're gonna they're gonna corner the market, they're gonna you know produce this much. Okay, well, at the same time, the Green Organic Dutchman was doing that, and Aurora was doing that, and Afri was doing that, and Kronos was doing that, and they're all going out to their respective bankers and their respective um, capital sources and all the analysts and saying, we can, we can produce this much, and that should translate into this much sales. Well, nobody took the time to say, is there a, tr- is there a TAM that can actually absorb everything that's being produced? And if there's not, then, then it doesn't look sure. I, I, you, could, you could cultivate 10 million square feet of cannabis, but if there's only enough um, um, of a market to consume a million of that, then the, uh, the rest of it's redundant. And that's where these, these guys got it completely and totally wrong for years where they were looking at what the, um, the ability to produce was without actually looking at what the ability to consume was. And, uh, and as it became increasingly apparent that everybody was building a brand new market, that the aggregate value of all this construction was a complete and total overbuild. You know, it's like if, if um, developers in New York City wanted to build 100 new high-rise office buildings, Okay, that's great, but if you can't rent the space, then it's stupid. And that's the same idea here. And uh, every time you thought that the walls were going to start caving in on these guys and the, you know, the, the cracks would emerge and they would start to hemorrhage, you had some other company like a, um, a Constellation Brands or an Altria come in and support these ridiculous valuations by making investments into companies like Canopy or Kronos. So every time the retail investor is like, okay, this is like, we're starting to agree these things are ridiculous, then you have this big company come in and completely validate, and everyone scratch their head, going, "Ah, you know, maybe we should give it another shot." Like these guys are smart guys. Like Constellation wouldn't put in four and a half billion dollars. They didn't know something we don't know, and then the fact of the matter is, they didn't. You know, and, and we watched it take down the U.S. market in two thousand and nineteen, and then we watched you know the U.S. market finally sort of emerge out of that, going like, "Look, don't don't you know throw the baby in with the bathwater and look to us as much you know more stable company with a much bigger market." Granted, we can't cross state lines; we've got other you know issues we have to face off against. But ultimately, there's three hundred thirty million people in the U.S. versus you know the thirty million and change in Canada. This is a significantly better market, but you're still seeing the market cap of a canopy be greater than the market cap of a GTI or a Cure Leaf or a um, or a True Leaf. So, you know, that, that's got to change. And I can tell you that here's the unfortunate part. Like, okay, the analysts are finally starting to get this thing right. But guess what? It's now going to cause the retail investors to second guess the U.S. market because, again, they don't understand the differentiation between the Canadian market and the U.S. market. And so if these slashing of estimates is going to drive the price down of Canadian companies, very likely it's going to drag the U.S. companies down with them again because people sell on the bad news. So it's, uh, you know, it's, 
the cycle that we've already seen repeating itself that I think is terribly unfortunate to companies that are doing great work on this side of the border because the Canadian guys got there first and the Canadian guys can actually list on the New York Stock Exchange and on the, uh, on the NASDAQ where they're viewed to be, you know, quote, real companies as a result of the exchange they can list on. The only difference being that they've got, you know, a federal government under Trudeau that actually supports cannabis rather than a federal government under Biden that doesn't. Well, that's a great point. And, you know, that that can't be underestimated in terms of, you know, what may give Canadian companies the motivation uh, to, to, to try to expand, you know, at the, at the levels they're doing. When you have government support, you know, that's huge in this country, uh, uh, you know, other than the companies that have grown up within the industry itself and, you know, like the Crescos and GTIs of the world. Last week, one of the other things we talked about was uh, Scott's Turf Builder and, and their big, uh, or Scott's at least, uh, and their big foray into this market. And, you know, they're one of the really few, as far as I can tell, big traditional companies that made their, their, their name and their success in another field, you know, albeit grass. <laughs> but they, you know, they, they want to stick their toe into this industry and, and they're not being shy about it. And, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting to see uh, how that does play out and everything. But I, you know, it, I'm just always amazed at, at, at you know, people's willingness uh, to start throwing values, whether it's on that level or, you know, even people applying for, you know, just a, a, a mom and pop cultivation license and they and they're trying to go get a loan from somebody and they have to start valuing their business i'm like on, on what basis are we valuing this business but people have bought into this idea that if you you know if it's cannabis it's, it's got an outsized value and it's you know that, that all you have to do is turn on the you know the the open sign and you start printing money and as we all know while there's plenty of examples of companies that have really cashed out big you know there's thousands of more that haven't yeah and look the uh the ancillary plays. I mean, Scott's Miracle Grow is a prime example of it, and there's another huge deal announced recently where Signify, which is uh, Philips Electronics, you know, it's their their lighting uh, side, just purchased Fluence, who was owned by Osram, which is a, a German company, and they bought that for 120 million dollars, which is you know an absurd amount of money based on you know where they were in the uh, in their life cycle. But a lot of the a lot of that sheen has come off as well. If you look at you know the last like six months, Hawthorne's business and Scott's Miracle Grow business, you know, has gone down significantly in value, and so as you know, Hydrofarm has gone down by something like sixty percent since the, its highs. Uh, grow generation is getting absolutely decimated. They're I think one sixth of what they were previously. So you know, there, there's a lot of the ancillaries. And, and by the way, I was interviewed I want to say about you know ten months ago by U.S. News and World Report on ancillaries, and I was the only one of like four people, you know, including Tim Seymour from CNBC, that strongly advocated to sell off these businesses, or I said they're terribly overvalued. They might be good underlying businesses, but not at this price. And uh, I'd like to, you know, sort of pat myself in the back that I got that one right for once and did it in print, where, you know, I can actually point to it later and say, look, you know, like I, I called this a long time ago. Um, and not to be a bear on everything, because I'm, I'm a huge bull of the, uh, the industry in general, but I'm, I'm very bearish when people assign valuations to businesses that they can't support. I mean, much like, you know, you guys talked about last week, but MJ Business's sale for, I think that was about $120 million as well, which represented 9.3 times, um, you know, standard EBITDA over the last two years. That's a lot of money for, for as a multiple for an events company or for a, a media company. And, you know, I know our producer, Dan Hummison, knows a fair amount about this. And, you know, Dan's reaction was that it's really not that out of whack for what people pay for these things. But, you know, like cannabis companies aren't selling for 9.3 times EBITDA, even though they're trading at a higher multiple, they're not being purchased at a higher multiple. They're being purchased at, you know, six to seven times EBITDA. And a lot of these companies aren't even truly EBITDA positive based on, you know, just how many other things they have to deal with. I mean, the, the, well, and even if they're EBITDA positive, they're certainly not net positive. Even if they're trading, you know, even if they're, you know, turning a, a 30, 40% EBITDA margin every year, they still might be net negative or net, you know, neutral simply because of, uh, of 280E, which happens after the, the EBITDA calculation. So it's, you know, fortunately the, um, the ancillaries don't have to deal with 280E, but, you know, just because you've got exposure to cannabis, whether you're IIPR or whether you're, you're Hawthorne or whether you're, you know, um, Signify, you know, all these companies, they, they shouldn't get um, a value that's any greater than they would be for any other industry. It just doesn't make any sense to assign it, you know, something greater. You know, I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, we have to be reasonable and, and it, it doesn't do the industry any good for people to come in and assign values to it that can never be 
recognized or realized because you, you start to turn people off on the benefits of the industry uh, rather than giving them realistic views of what they can expect and and where it might go. And, you know, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, you know, the strides we've made, you know, we've talked about being at the 2013 MJ Biz show, and I just remember them sitting there showing us these charts of, you know, where we anticipate the market will be in 2020 and 2021. And um, the, the level of growth that they showed just seemed incomprehensible to me. And yet here we are. And, you know, and, and we've we've achieved a lot of that growth. Uh, but what's more amazing is I think that if you sat down and talked to people today, given the size still of the black market out there and the number of states that we still have that can still flip over and uh, go to adult use and all of that, that the, the, the room for growth remains big. But, you know, you, you make a great point and people have to remember this. You know, there's only so many people that like to smoke marijuana. And although there's a lot of them, it's not an unlimited supply. And at some point, we're going to have more marijuana than we need, which is a good problem, I guess. That's why it makes it really interesting that companies like Tilray right now are saying, okay, we're not going to be a, a cannabis-only business. And we realize that you know we probably oversold um, our ability to, to sell cannabis. But we're sitting on a pile of cash in our balance sheet. We've got to put it somewhere. So where do we put it that actually allows us to realize the growth we promised to our shareholders? And what I find so fascinating about Tilray right now is they're doing the reverse of what everyone expected. Everyone thought the alcohol companies were going to come in and start buying the cannabis companies. And here's Tilray going out and buying alcohol companies. They, they bought you know, Breckenridge um, dis, uh, Distillery. They bought Sweetwater, which is a massive, massive brewery in Atlanta, Georgia, who produces you know the 420 Pale Ale that Delta actually sells in every flight they, they put across the country. And now they've bought you know Green Flash and another brewery at the end of last year. So, you know, I would ask you, is Tilray a cannabis company now or is it an alcohol company or is it a true hybrid? Well, that's a great question. But I have to tell you the the irony of a marijuana company being big enough that it can go out and start buying alcohol companies is just delicious to me. I love that because, you know, the thought was that all the, very quickly the alcohol companies are going to come in and they're going to, you know, they're always going to be in charge of the intoxicant markets and, and they'll buy out everything and they'll take over. Marijuana has grown so big so fast that, yes, a company like Tilray that is a marijuana company can now go in and, and we shouldn't lose sight, I think, of of just how amazing that that is to start. But to me, what I really like about this is it's going it, to, if it, if it becomes a trend, it's going to lead to normalization in the reverse way, right? It, it, instead of traditional companies adopting cannabis and marijuana, we're going to have marijuana companies stepping in and expanding into traditional uh, markets w with other things based on the name that they've created for themselves in the marijuana market. I mean, right that that's that's part of the appeal there so how wonderful is that that a marijuana company says we feel comfortable enough with our brand that we can stick our toe into alcohol or a different market and and be doing our uh, investors as good a service as if we were just doing maybe even better than if we were uh, trying to do more cannabis investments right now yeah look I me mean, if i was a big enough cannabis company i sure would be um, going out and trying to raise capital that is now relatively inexpensive for expansion and buying in, in, in businesses that might be more profitable than cannabis is in the near term. It, it makes a great deal of sense. If, if you've got access to capital the way the bigger guys do, then, uh, then, then why not expand your footprint into, uh, into new verticals? So I, I don't think it's a bad plan that these guys are, are moving forward with. No, I don't think it's, I mean, you know, I can't speak to it, you know, on the same level, uh, you know, from a business perspective, but certainly on an industry-wide perspective, I think it's wonderful to see, you know, it, it, it gets interesting because a big part of the marijuana speech always, of course, is that we're this, you know, we're the healthier alternative to alcohol for uh, intoxication and all of that, you know, and once you start to combine the two together, you, you lose that a little bit, but I, I don't see that as much of a problem. And again, I love the idea that maybe at the end of the day, it will be the marijuana companies that really do dominate, you know, the market for um, alcohol and, and marijuana and who knows what else, you know, anything that falls under the intoxicant label that the government says, uh, you know, can now legally be sold. And, and, you know, that might be, we might find that to be a lot better for those industries ultimately to have a strong marijuana presence at the top of the food chain than to have a strong alcohol presence at the top of the marijuana chain. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, you know, kind of going back a couple minutes and, and again, sort of shifting into our next topic is accurately putting a price on an asset is critically important, not just from the standpoint of, you know, selling it, but from the standpoint of being able to attract new capital. And what I'll say is that, you know, as a lot of these companies, the ones you've talked about that have flamed out that have not been successful, 
oftentimes it's because they went out with so much hubris in the beginning and said, oh, our company should be worth $100 million, and they raised capital at a valuation that was unsustainable, that when they tried to go out for a second round of capital, there's no way they could do it without going through a down round because um, you know they, they had never proved out that the value they tried to uh, initially go with uh, was sustainable. So I think the companies I've watched to be really successful, including some of the largest companies we talked about, whether it's like the GTIs or the Cureleafs, they're you know relatively modest when they first came out of the gate and uh, and put a value on their business. And the people that got in early did very well. And every round they've had subsequently has gone up. So I think it's important for entrepreneurs you know that are listening out there when you actually think about what your business is worth when you go out for your you know Series A or even for your friends and family round. Uh, to not be overly aggressive because you want to give you know room to uh, to scale your business and to uh, to look attractive to the next round of investor, and I think a group that's done that relatively well is uh, is, is our producer Dan Hummiston's daughter Carson Hummiston with her company Vangst, who has now you know been successful at. A, attracting a true series B from out of industry participants that, um, you know, it represents a meaningful investment. It was I think the top line is what a $19 million investment. Larry, is that right? That's right. It's just, look, it, it's, it's wonderful to see for a lot of reasons, you know, uh, from my experience, uh, or from my personal perspective, I'll just toot my own horn just long enough to say that I, I met Carson back when Dan uh, was first getting the International Cannabis Association up and running, which subsequently became the Cannabis World Congress. Um, and even then, you know, as, as a uh, college student who came to Las Vegas to help uh, with all the organization, uh, she seemed like an incredibly talented person, you know, to sit there and tell you that I was bright enough to see that she might do something like this. I would be lying, but it certainly doesn't surprise me. Um, and uh, although I know Carson is someone who sometimes tends to uh, avoid the spotlight, uh, you know, I don't want the moment to pass without both, you know, certainly uh, congratulating her and, of course, uh, our producer, Dan Humiston, who is her father and uh, should be a proud father in this situation, like any of us would be if our uh, children could be that successful and especially that successful um, in the cannabis industry. But, you know, she was the right person in the right place at the right time. Uh, but even more than that, I think, you know, really possesses the uh, – social skills in the in terms of how do you go out and how do you really speak up your business and how do you get uh, potential investors to buy into what you see as your dream and you know look it, it's it's not that hard of a sell I don't think to get people to see that as this industry grows there there is an ever-increasing demand not just for labor but for skilled labor and you know I think more and more it's going to become important that you know gone are the days of you know a hottie or a, you know a dude looking type of bud tender who would just give you hey man you catch the panic show last night yeah what you know I mean we're we're we're, we're moving into an era now where people expect a certain level of professionalism and if they want to ask their bud tender a question that the bud tender can actually answer it um, you know, and, and be able to give them something back that that makes sense to them. And, uh, you know, those people are out there, but in any like any other industry, you know, what, what business owner has the time to go out and find all these people? And Carson's done an amazing job of, you know, finding both the businesses and finding the people and putting them together. And um, I think it's wonderful to see, you know, couldn't be happier for her. And, um, you know, I, I'm sure that the people who invested with her will find themselves very happy in the long run. Certainly hope so. Yeah. And for our listeners out there that aren't familiar with, uh, with what Carson does and what Vangst does, which is V-A-N-G-S-T, it, it's a, a recruiting platform. So if you've got staffing needs in your canvas business, you know, I'll, I'll give a, a pretty heavy shout out to, to Carson and her team. If you're looking for employees, if you're looking for, for hires, Definitely turn to Vanks. Now, having said that, Carson, when you listen to the show, I certainly expect you'll start advertising with us now with your newfound $19 million. <laughs> so, you know, so this is this is first one's free, kid. First one's free. Um, but after this, you know, like, you know, I, I, I am very supportive of, you know, people that are looking to get involved in the canvas industry and looking for a place where they can actually put their CV or resume. You know, Vanks is a great place to do it. And it's a great place for employers to, to seek out talent and, and qualified people. So, you know, again, congrats to Carson. Congrats to the entire Vanks team. And, and I'll tell you, one of the things I like about Vanks uh, as well is, you know, it, 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 you know, my impression of these types of things is always, you know, look, we need bud tenders. We need people to work in cultivation centers. We're, we're looking for young college graduates, people who have an interest in the industry. But there's a lot of guys, and I've got a couple of buddies, you know, who have been, you know, who are been in the industry as it were for years and years and years and you know one or two of them who wound up on the wrong side of the law and you know did a little time at uh, courtesy of the uh, state guest house and um, you know they're now looking you know many of these people are now looking for a way to come back into the industry and you know Vangst is there you know to provide uh, a platform for a lot of people and I think that you know certainly that older generation of, uh, of folks who you know were, 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 were providing cannabis for all of us back before we had the Cresco's and GTI's of the world 
uh, you know, still have a lot that they can impart on today's market. And, uh, you know, it's always great to see the support for that as well. Uh, you know, the people who help push things uh, finally have a chance to get a piece of the pie. So uh, shout out to that part of it as well. And, yeah, um, you know, in fact, I don't even know of any other placement agency in the cannabis industry. So if anybody asked me who I would recommend, I would tell them Vangst and uh, definitely tell them to move in that direction. So, yes, certainly shout outs and congratulations to all. And also a, uh, you know, congratulations to Dan as a father. You know, I can certainly understand the paternal pride there. And, you know, even if our kids don't want us to acknowledge it, sometimes we just have to. Well, that's a lot for today. Uh, we've got a lot with a lot to talk about. We have a lot more good stuff coming up as we go forward, and uh, uh, we start to look at what uh, the possibilities are for uh, possibly summer tours and whether uh, Dead and Company can figure out a way to rebound. And one other thing I just want to throw in there in the midst of all of this, in my opinion, at least from what I can tell, didn't really get enough conversation, is that now when they're talking about Billy Kreutzmann, it, it's no longer a non-COVID respiratory issue. Now they're talking about it being a heart issue. And again, I have no idea what that means, and I haven't heard anything uh, that suggests uh, an imminent problem one way or the other, other than to recognize that these guys are all in their, you know, mid to late 70s now. And Phil, of course, we know is in his 80s. And, you know, th that's to me is ultimately the worst part about uh, having to cancel playing in the sand is, you know, how much longer do these guys really have to be able to, and admittedly, Phil wasn't going to be there for this go around. But, you know, even for any of them, you know, they're all old. You know, even the perpetual teenager, Bob Weir, is now an old man. And, um, you know, it's just, it's, uh, it, it's, it's hard to see, you know, your, your childhood heroes get to that stage, but it's great to see that they're still, you know, kicking it on and, and you know, and, and trying to get it all done. But whatever is going on with Bill Kreutzman, uh, certainly our best wishes to him and hopes that uh, he will be able to rejoin the band and, uh, you know, bring back his, you know, very large uh, and always present personality uh, in everything that they do. Yeah, well said. Well said, Larry. Uh, so I figured I'd leave us at the end of this episode with, um, you know, because it was kind of an end of an era, you know, there's very few uh, duets that were done, you know, with the Godshaws, but Passenger being kind of a, a prime example of one. And uh, anyone that's a Passenger fan, I think it's mostly a Passenger fan because the, the lightning Garcia licks that come at the end of that song. Um, so as, a, as I sign off and say thanks, we'll see you next week, um, you know, I'll leave you with, with knowing the, the Passenger outro uh, is, uh, is what we'll sign off this show with. But um, from Linnea Holdings, this is Rob Hunt, and we'll see you next week. Thank you, Rob. As always, Larry Michigan from Michigan Law. Thanks for joining us, and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name's Kate, and I'm your host of the Pop Moms podcast. I started the Pop Moms podcast, well, because I wanted to end the stigma against using cannabis, specifically with moms, but also anyone who chooses to consume. I strive for a balance of humor and education, along with some pretty rad guests, to help combat social biases that come with consuming cannabis. Kids are hard. Join me for regular podcast episodes packed with parenting hacks, real-life stories, and of course, my favorite cannabis products. The days are long, but the years are short. So roll another J and take a deep breath. Keep blazing and stay amazing. <laughs>